This morning, for a reading from God's Word, we have Walter Rhine, who's going to read from us, read for us from the Gospel according to Mark. The Lesson of the Gospels, Mark 1. Please stand for the Lesson of the Gospels. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now God was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He preached, saying, After me comes who is mightier than I, the strap of sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering for him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee and proclaiming the gospel of the God and saying, Time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you um, become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. A little while farther we saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were mending the nets. Immediately he called to them and left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We're just going to read the first half, and so you may be seated. Morning with uh, the practice that we've been starting, which is a portion of the sermon that is specifically directed primarily to the children among us. And so, kids, uh, I don't know if, if y'all have like a some sort of bedtime routine, but one of my favorite parts of the day is at the end of a long day, I get to sit down and read a book with my daughter Naomi. And we've read a lot of like amazing books. Nobody, nobody, look at her. We have read a lot of amazing books over the years. And the new book that we have just recently started reading is The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Are you all familiar with this book? Like, the book, not the movie? Like, have we all read the book? It's actually a book. It's amazing. I'm like one of those weird people that says the book is always better than the movie. And in the case of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, this is definitely true. But if you're not familiar with this story, it's a story about this little girl from Kansas named Dorothy and her little dog Toto. They get caught up in a tornado and planted in this wonderful, magical land called Oz. It's the land of Oz. And in Oz, Dorothy meets a witch. 
who tells her the way to get back home. He says, the way to get back home is you've got to find this man called the Wizard of Oz. And he is the only one who's going to be able to help you. In order to get to the Wizard of Oz, what do you have to follow? The yellow brick road to get to the Emerald City. Miss Ryan knows. She's read to her kids. And along the way, Dorothy finds three characters, encounters, meets three characters who join her along on this journey. Does anybody know any one of those characters? The Tin Man? The Cowardly Lion and Lucy? Do you know the last one? The Scarecrow. And each of these characters is missing something or wanting something. Does anybody know what each of these characters needs or wants? Yes. Ellie? The Tin Man does not have a heart and he needs a heart. Naomi? The Scarecrow needs a brain. And lastly, the lion, the cowardly lion, wants bravery or courage. And all of them are expecting the Wizard of Oz to give it to them. Right? So they join Dorothy on the journey to the Emerald City, following the Yellow Brick Road, in order to meet the great and wonderful Wizard of Oz. And I don't think it's a spoiler. I mean, this book's been out for like over 120 years. And so it's okay, I think, I'm, if I spoil it a little bit. But what ends up happening? Toto, he, you know, he uh, drags the curtain away and reveals who the actual Wizard of Oz is. And he's just a normal man. No special powers. None whatsoever. But the amazing thing is that the Wizard of Oz actually does, even though he's a normal man, he ends up providing everything that they need, even though... He's not what they originally expected or hoped for. And eventually, he gives Dorothy a ride home back to Kansas in his hot air balloon. And the reason I bring that up is because the Wizard of Oz is kind of, in a way, like the Messiah for the Jewish people around the time of Jesus You see, at that time, there's a lot of expectations and ideas about who the Messiah is. In the same way that Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Lion, they all had expectations for this wizard who would solve all of their problems. And it's the same way for the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. They were Israelites, and they believed that the Messiah would be able to solve all of their problems. And they had an expectation about how he would do this. But like the wizard, when Jesus came, he totally overturned their expectations. But he ends up being the Messiah, the Savior that the people need, even though he is not what they at first expected. So that we're going to talk about today. The sermon is about expectations and how Jesus subverts our expectations, but ends up really providing what we truly need. And so please pray with me this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, this opportunity that you've given us to look into your word more closely in order that we might see Jesus as he is, and that through seeing him, our joy and our delight in him might grow and that our lives would be transformed into the people that you have created us to be. We thank you so much for the gospel of Mark and the picture of Jesus that we get in it. What a treasure that you have given us in your word. To know that 
we could read through the entire Gospel of Mark in less than 30 minutes and get this amazing picture of the salvation that you've given us. This is a treasure, Lord, and I pray that we would treat it as such, that we would delight in it, and that as we make our way through it, that you would increase the joy of our salvation that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're starting a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, we spent a lot of time, I think in the past, I don't know, six to eight months in the Old Testament. Like we've gone through Deuteronomy, we've gone through Psalms, maybe you thought we'd never get to the New Testament. But here we are, we're at the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be spending the next few months looking at the Gospel of Mark. And as we go through Mark's Gospel, I only want you to have one primary goal in mind. We've spent a lot of time in Mark's Gospel But the one goal we have is to see Jesus as he is. See Jesus as he is. And this language I'm getting from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Usually I'm like, you know, we shouldn't just pick and choose verses that we like. We've got to appreciate them in their context and understand them. But really I'm just picking and choosing this verse that I really like. And I'm making it the theme of our time here in the Gospel of Mark. This is what... 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, that is Jesus, when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You know, there's so much to unpack in this short verse, but the one thing I want to highlight right now is that second half of the verse where it says that we become like Jesus. Like, that's the goal that God has for us when he says this, that you might become like Jesus. And how does this happen? The crucial word is because. We become like Jesus because we will see him as he is. Meaning, our likeness to Jesus is directly related to how clearly and how fully and how accurately we see who Jesus is. So the question is, the question that this verse brings up is, do we have to wait until Jesus returns in order to see Jesus as he truly is? My answer to that question, I think, would be a yes and a no. Because scripture does say that in a sense, when Jesus returns, there will be like a clarity and a fullness of understanding who Jesus is. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but back then in Paul's time, the time of Jesus when the Bible was written, mirrors were not very clear. Like, when we think of mirrors... Yeah, I don't know if you have like these nice fancy mirrors that are like illuminated and super bright. It's like clearer than you could see in real life. But back then, you would look in a mirror, but you wouldn't see very clearly. You couldn't distinguish anything specifically in the mirrors they had back then. And that's what they said. Looking at Jesus is sometimes like that now. We can't see him as clearly as we one day will be able to. But God has given us the Gospels. The New Testament Gospels are a witness of Jesus so that even though we can't see him perfectly, even though we can't see him fully, that we can see what he is like. 
And the promise is that the more you encounter Jesus as he's presented to us in the Gospels, the more you'll become like him. You'll become less selfish, more loving, less anxious, more trusting, more dependent on God as you see Jesus. And so later on in my life, I've decided I'm going to write a Christian self-help book. Have you ever seen these or if you're familiar with them? But I'm going to write a Christian self, self-help bestseller. No? Not a good idea. Okay, well, maybe I will. And the title of it will be See Jesus as He Is. And all it's going to be is a book about Jesus as He's portrayed in the four Gospels. Right? There's not five steps to a better and happier life. The Bible makes it very clear. All you have to do to live the life that God intends for you is to see Jesus clearly. And so that's our goal in the Gospel of Mark. And today we'll be starting with chapter 1. Jesus as he is according to Mark's Gospels. Um, so just a little background information before we kind of dig into Mark. So we'll be spending the next few, like I said, the next few months into Mark, and we'll be going more like a, a closer reading. But today's sermon will be more of a general overview of kind of what is the entire book of Mark about? What is the perspective that we should take as we move through the Gospel of Mark? And just one thing to know about Mark is that typically most scholars think that it's the first gospel that was written and recorded um, after the life of Jesus, probably around 25, 30 years after his death. And no one knows for sure, but I think the most sensible reason of why Mark is written is that the first generation of Christians, followers of Jesus, are like starting to pass away. And so up until this point, the only way people would learn about Jesus is through eyewitness testimony, for people passing around the stories of Jesus. The problem was, there's a lot of true stories circulating about Jesus, but at the same time, there's a lot of false stories. And so Mark is compiling eyewitness testimonies based primarily on the Apostle Peter's testimony about what is the true and authoritative story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because a lot of people may have different views about who Jesus is. And the, re- the way that Mark presents his gospel is that he presents Jesus as the unexpected king. So that's kind of the framework that I want us to think of as we work through the gospel of Mark. Jesus is the unexpected king. Verse 1 says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I want to focus on the word Christ. So the word Christ is the Greek uh, rendering of the Hebrew word or the Old Testament word Messiah, which means anointed one. And this is a very important concept for Jewish people at the time of Jesus. You see, Jesus, or I'm sorry, Israel, or the Jews, have very, a lot of problems in the first century AD. Let me read a few of the problems that they have to you. First, the Jews lack independence and self-government because they live under Roman rule. So a foreign power has taken over their land and they live under the service of the ancient Romans. Secondly, they have a great sense of dislocation and cultural fragmentation due to the fact that Jewish people are scattered all over the world. So you might have heard of the term diaspora. This refers to the fact that Jews aren't just located in the land of Israel under Roman rule, but they're in Israel, but they're scattered all over the Roman world at this time. 
Third, they have a physical and economic oppression and discrimination as a result of being a minority people during that time. Most of them aren't citizens of the Roman Empire. And lastly, there's social margin- marginalization because they live in the midst of a polytheistic culture. And polytheism just means that a belief in many gods. But if you're familiar with Judaism, they believe that there's only one God. And so they're a minority people with pe- radical beliefs compared to the culture that surrounds them. And Israel's answer to each and every one of these problems is the Messiah. All of the hopes that the people have at this time are tied up in this idea of God sending his anointed one to deliver them. And there's a sense in which putting all their hope in the Messiah is actually the right thing. That's like what they should be doing because they're acknowledging like all these problems are way bigger than us. There's nothing that we can do, humanly speaking, that will solve any of these issues. So they should be looking to God. The problem is not that they're looking forward to the Messiah, but that they're looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. So I'm going to read for us this morning um, an excerpt from a collection of prayers called the Psalms of Solomon. If you're familiar, Solomon is a, uh, it was the king of Israel, probably around a thousand years before Jesus. And there's a collection of prayers that Solomon probably didn't write, but people are in the century before Jesus write in Solomon's voice in order to express their hopes. And this is often called Second Temple or Intertestamental Literature. And so the Old Testament, probably the last parts of the Old Testament were written about 400 years before Jesus. But during these 400 years, it's not like people stopped writing or thinking or hoping in God. And so we have all of these documents that are not scripture, so we don't place them on the same level as the Old Testament, but they help us to understand what Jewish people at the time of Jesus believed or hoped for or trusted in or wanted to happen. And this is one of those works. I'm going to read it for us this morning. This helps us to understand... What were the expectations that Jewish people at the time of Jesus had about the coming Messiah? And I'll read it for us now. It says this, See, Lord, speaking to God, raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar, to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the unlawful nations with the word of his mouth. He will gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness. He will be a righteous king over them, taught by God. There will be no unrighteousness among them in his days for all shall be holy and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. So this is what people let's say, a hundred years and following before the time of Jesus, we're looking forward to about their Messiah. And what do we learn? Number one, the Messiah will be a Davidic king who will restore God's kingdom and rule over Israel. Number two, this Davidic king will destroy all of God's enemies. And number three, he will rule over God's people in righteousness. And that sounds pretty good, right? All of these problems that Israel is dealing with are going to be solved by the Messiah. And I think a lot of us, it's difficult to connect with this because we live in such a a very different 
cultural circumstance and historical time than the Jews did. But if we're not looking for a, like a Messiah figure to be sent by God, I think all of us still do in some way have like a future that we envision or a kind of a, a vision of a life that we would embrace and expect God to give us to bring us things like peace and security, freedom, joy, satisfaction, all the really like deep human things that the Israelites really wanted. I think we share the same things with them. I think that these are just some examples I thought of of what is the kind of life people might expect God to give them in the same way that the Israelites expected God to send them a Messiah. Here's the one that I thought for a long time when I was a kid. If I'm a good kid, good, in quotation marks, however you want to define that, if I'm a good kid and I get good grades and I do all the right extracurricular activities, then God will help me get into the college that I want to go to. I think that's a fairly normal expectation that a lot of people might have. What about this one? Marriage will satisfy my deep longings for acceptance and help me not to feel so lonely. Successful children with happy families will make all these sacrifices worth it in the end. A large enough bank account will provide me with enough peace and security so that I won't have to worry about anything in life. I'll faithfully put in my time at my job so that I'll be able to retire and live life in comfort afterward. If you just trust and have faith in God, you're never going to struggle with things like addiction or depression, loneliness or a sense of purpose, purposelessness. You know, all these kind of expectations are out there in the world, but often they seep into the church as well. And things that we all struggle with. And the question that we always have to ask, and the questions that the Israelites needed to ask, were, are our expectations valid and based on biblical truth? Is that what the Bible promises? And the Gospel of Mark, what it does is it takes all of the expectations of the Israelites and our expectations as well about what God is like and the kind of salvation that Jesus brings and it flips them upside down and inverts all of them. And says, you were expecting a certain kind of Messiah or a certain kind of king, a certain kind of life, but actually Jesus is the unexpected king and leads you in a different life than you would have chosen for yourself. And that's what we're going to see. Mark's gospel, kind of in a general sense, you can divide it into two halves, roughly. The first half is chapters 1 through 7. The second half is chapters 11 through 16. And in the center are the three most important chapters in the gospel of Mark, and it's chapters 8 through 10. In the first half, Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God and displaying his mighty works over demonic forces and natures, these are like all the miracle stories that many of us are familiar with. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He calms the sea and the wind. He walks on water. And twice, he multiplies bread in order to feed thousands and thousands of people. So in one episode, he feeds 5,000 people. And then he feeds 4,000 people just a few chapters later. He's a, one, he's a miracle worker. One scholar puts it this way. In the first half of Mark's gospel, Jesus acts as a superhero who exercises the power of God to subdue the forces of evil. He sounds like the Messiah that everybody is expecting. He's going to overcome all of God's enemies. 
and restore the kingdom to Israel. And so after he does all of these things, after he shows all of his power, he, takes, uh, he goes to his disciples and he asks them the most important question in the entire Gospel of Mark. This is in chapter 8. Jesus goes up to his disciples, his closest followers, and he asks them this question. Who do you say that I am? That is the central question in the Gospel of Mark, not only for the disciples, but for all of us. Who do you say that Jesus is? To which Peter responds, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. In one sense, Peter responds correctly. But right afterwards, it's very clear that Peter doesn't know. Peter still misunderstands who the Messiah is. Because right after Peter says, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the one that God has sent to deliver his people, this is what it says in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. At that point, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So in the first half of the gospel, everybody wants to be on team Jesus. Wouldn't you? The one who's providing food out of nowhere, healing the sick, driving out demons with just one command. Everybody wants to follow that guy. But then, in chapter 8, Jesus says what he's really came here to do, to suffer many things, to be rejected, and ultimately to be killed. And how does Peter respond? Peter takes him aside, and Peter, it says, rebukes Jesus. The same language that is used to describe how Jesus rebuked the demons, it says Peter rebuked Jesus, and he says, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, the gospel that Mark refers to in chapter 1, verse 1, at the very beginning, when it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this gospel means God's victory over his enemies and the establishment of his kingdom. That's the good news. God will bring victory over all of his enemies and establish his kingdom. But the unexpected, surprising part is how he does that. God's victory comes as a result of agony, a result of suffering, and ultimately the death of his greatest champion, who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You see, as I mentioned in the beginning, the goal of our study of the Gospels is to see Jesus as he is and not as we expect him to be. And to see Jesus as he is, according to the Gospel of Mark, is to see Jesus as the crucified Messiah. Jesus is the crucified Messiah, and the promise held out to every one of us is, if you see Jesus as the crucified Messiah, then you'll become more and more like him. That is why Mark's call to following Jesus, the way that Mark describes Christian discipleship, is framed by his reference to Jesus' death. So, very shortly after, Jesus rebukes Satan, and he says, Get away from me, Satan. You're speaking of the things of man and not the things of God. Jesus says this, Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life, will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. See, at this point in the story, Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. He's told them that I'm going to live a life of suffering. But then he says, if you want to follow me, then you're going to have to follow me in the path of life that I have chosen. See, Jesus establishes the pattern of life in his kingdom, and it's through self-sacrificial love. That's the way you become like Jesus. And do you know the greatest benefit of being like Jesus? It's not that you never feel guilt because you're not sinful. I mean, I think a lot of times that's what we think of as we, like, I want to be more like Jesus because I don't want to mess up so much. I don't want to do bad things. I don't want to get upset at my spouse or my kids. I don't want to be anxious. I want to trust in God. The greatest benefit of being like Jesus is not even that you're a more loving and compassionate person, although that's true. The greatest benefit of being like Jesus in the way that Mark is calling you to be like Jesus as you see Jesus as he is, the greatest benefit is that you will know God. Because if there's anything that is true about Jesus is that he knew God. And everything that he did in his life and in his death was an overflow of his relationship with God. If you see Jesus as he is, you'll know God's presence. Because you'll know Jesus' submission to his Father, even against his own will. You'll know God's power, because you'll know that Jesus himself was completely and utterly dependent upon God, both in life and in death. If you see Jesus as he is, then you'll know God's peace, because you'll know that Jesus conquers death by his death. You see, what Mark is trying to get us to see is that all the blessings of the Christian life come from knowing Jesus as the crucified Messiah, the one who establishes the pattern of life, of what it means to live life in the presence of God, relying completely upon him, that even though he's the son of God, that he submitted himself to the will of the Father in order that all of us might receive salvation in him. Let us then together journey in these upcoming months together through Mark's gospel with an eye and a goal to see Jesus as he truly is, the crucified Messiah, the Son of God, in order that we might trust in him and become more and more like him. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray.